There is life in rock, and there is life that comes out of everything, Jerry Brunetti says in a talk from 2009 at our EcoAg conference. Uh, hello and welcome to Tractor Time, a podcast by your friends at Acres USA. I'm Ryan Slavaw, host of Tractor Time, and just want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast today. Uh, there is life that comes out of everything. Um, unfortunately, today, we could not get our phone recording system to come to life to allow us to interview Joel Salatin, who was scheduled for this week's podcast. Um, so we had to reschedule. I would want to thank Joel for hanging in there with us and rescheduling. And if you happen to notice any weird noises during today's recording, it's probably me scratching my head trying to figure out uh, what exactly went wrong uh, and transition warning. Uh, what doesn't let us down, as Jerry was hinting in that quote, uh, is good soil and uh, when we treat it well. Uh, good soil functions very much like the te- technology we're trying to build today and create. It has a hundred little components that work together. It creates new products and crops and if we treat it right and nurture it, it will work forever. Uh, you just can't say that about most pieces of technology. Uh, we're noticing a trend too, this idea is catching on, recent stories and Big publications like the Washington Post are proclaiming the good news about soil management and how we need all these microbial life forms to help convert carbon over to energy. It's a useful tool in the pushback against climate change and good soil, as you know, as I know, absorbs carbon and converts it to energy while bad soil reflects it or just traps it and releases it back into the air without any real conversion happening. Uh, Here's an analogy, good or bad, probably bad, but uh, it kind of works. Uh, Bad soil is like a car that spits out fuel but doesn't go anywhere. Good soil is like a car that converts that fuel into energy and something much more valuable than the uh, inputs that went into it. So instead of Joel Salatin, and again, thanks Joel for, for and and listeners, you'll be able to catch Joel hopefully next week. We'll we'll just uh, work on this a little bit. Um, You can insert a photo of a dog chewing on a cord here, I guess. Uh, we thought it'd be good, good to turn back the clock to do a talk from 2009 at our EcoAg conference. Uh, Jerry Brunetti, uh, rest in peace, was a fearless advocate for soil management and gave us a presentation then called Soil as a Superorganism. In other words, a supercomputer built to process everything efficiently and create answers for us that are accurate. So there is life in rock, there is life that comes out of everything, he says. Uh, we like that so much we want to share it with you today. We really wish Jerry could still be here today to speak with us in person, but we'll settle for the best thing we've got, uh, which is his talk, Soil as a Superorganism from 2009. We hope you enjoy it. Okay. Uh, well, good afternoon, Buena. Sera, almost. Is it one? Is it, no, it's not afternoon. It's still morning. So, buongiorno. Okay, we're there. Um, I'm not going to be talking so much about um, the soil food web, as uh, many of you people have um, experienced with other lecturers. In fact, there's a simultaneous uh, workshop or lecture going on on that. I'm going to touch on that, but what I'd like to talk about is the big picture. I'm a big picture kind of person. I like to look at things from a distance and give you some ideas as to just the... Um, interplay of this vast inner universe that we call soil. Um, and that's a great, by the way, great DVD out there called Dirt. I think that's a great thing, a great primer for all of us uh, who are even non-farmers to uh, become acquainted with the marriage between heaven and earth, which is topsoil. Um, so that, what you're going to hear about today is, is a splash of this and that, a real palette of 
many things that I feel have uh, pretty interesting and significant implications on why soil is soil, or why soil could be soil, or why dirt could be soil. So those are some of the things that I'm going to try to get you um, enthused about, including some of the things in the soil food web, but beyond that as well. And I think this um, comment that I use pretty repeatedly in my, in my discussions uh, becomes truer today than it has in the past. And I think the older I get and the more that I learn, the more knowledge that I have, the less I understand. You know, it's, that's the way it goes. It's the curse of getting old. Ignorance is bliss after all. I finally figured that out. Um, so we're going to look at what's in soil, and these are plants on the prairie. You know, this vast um, ecosystem that we've destroyed, uh, over 90% of it's gone. And um, I don't know how many people look at that switchgrass plant, how large that plant is, but uh, that, that plant from bottom to top is 17 feet tall. 17 feet. Now imagine an ocean of 200 and some odd species of those kinds of plants in topsoil. That probably was the greatest gift to um, civilization, which is a great idea, but it doesn't work. But the greatest great gift is this topsoil, which occurred from glaciation and then was made even more of this topsoil based on the recycling of all those nutrients which come out of that subsoil come all the way to the top of that topsoil. And then you just heard Dr. Provenza talk about how the management of those animals and grazing this kind of a, t of a top growth kept those nutrients there and actually grew that topsoil over eons and eons and eons of time, where now we ended up <clears throat> turning what was a hunter-gatherer ecosystem into a desert that needs to be irrigated to grow annual crops that are causing obesity and ethanol. Yeah, it's amazing how clever we are. This is a compass plant. And if you know about the compass plant, it's that plant that actually was called the compass plant simply because you could use it. It always pointed north. It was one of those plants that you could find your way in the, uh, the Great Plains by looking at the compass plant. If you didn't know where north was based on where the sun shone, hello. But nevertheless, it still was an interesting uh, plant amongst a couple of hundred species that, again, that, that root system there is almost the same size as that switchgrass ecosystem root system that you saw, about 16 feet there. So if you just go to annuals, just to look at these root systems and how, and what I'm going to talk about with root systems, what do you see here is what we're going to talk about today called fractal geometry or fractal architecture. And what fractal architecture really is, is nature's way of making infinity within a finite area. And you see this repeatedly in animals and plants. All kinds of ecosystems use fractal geometry, fractal architecture, to increase surface area, because where you have surface area, you have biological reactions. So we're going to blow this up downstream from here, but I'm trying to make the emphasis that it's all about creating these ecosystems of which what really farmers are all about are stewards of ecosystems. They're not stewards so much of agriculture, because agriculture's turned into an, a monoculture industry. If you're really a good farmer, you're a, you're a steward of an ecosystem, of many ecosystems, because we can't even count them. Um, but what we're, we're talking about is, is ecosystems that start from what we can see, and then we're going to go into ecosystems that deal with fractal architecture from what we cannot see. Now, this is a single rye plant, and we now know, based on the research that's been coming even out of the universities, that a single annual, this is, a, this is an annual, 
that has to be harvested and its roots die off every year, produce 6,000 miles of roots that grow out and recede, and that whole growing out and receding, growing out and receding is actually kind of a, a pulsing. And that pulsing is also based on the fact that water is a substance uh, of which the planet is predominantly comprised of. Uh, plants are 80 to 90% water, animals are 75% water, so it is the universal solvent. And water is this medium between heaven and earth. That is to say, it responds to both gravity, the forces of gravity in the earth, and it responds to forces of the cosmos that are basically anti-gravity. And so when we look at this pulsing, it's based on the miracle of water, or as Jennifer Green of the Water Institute calls it, the wateriness of water. The wateriness of water. So that pulsing is rhythm. And water is not alive unless it has rhythm. And pulsing is based on the fact that you have an obstruction, which of course in this case are the obstructions within the physiology of the root, as well as the obstructions that are in the soil uh, constructs itself. And so this pulsing actually creates topsoil by shedding off the epithelial surfaces of those roots, leaving high, high digestibly uh, carbohydrate-rich food substrates for what? The microorganisms that need energy. And all that came from sunlight. And basically, that's what this is all about. The miracle, the alchemical miracle of agriculture really is the crystallization of sunlight, ultimately. The crystallization of sunlight through carbon dioxide and water creating these sugar-carbohydrate-type compounds, which are then exuded into that ecosystem, which then become food substrates for these other organisms within that ecosystem that grow topsoil. Now, that was a, an annual. When you get into a perennial, it goes up logarithmically, exponentially. The amount of root mass and root surface goes up cubically. It's, it's multiple times the surface area that you get in an annual crop. Now, you can see the wheatgrass way at the top. This is the annual. Next to what? The perennial wheat. See the differences of the root systems? You see why we have an issue with annual cropping. Who is producing most of the sunlight into the topsoil? And also remember that what we're also releasing into the, into the subsoil, in the topsoil, below the surface of the soil, are photonic emissions, which are another form of sunlight. That's light as well. Photonic emissions which comes out of the cell membrane. We're talking about light that's emitted at the DNA where animal, plant, human, all communicate with photonic emissions. And this we'll get into based on the work that Fritz Albert Popp did in Germany a number of years ago. The mycorrhizae has been talked about and still is being talked about across that wall. You're hearing a lot of discussions about the mycorrhizal. On, this is mycorrhizal on grass plants. This is the fungal uh, inoculant or fungal symbiont that parasitizes beneficially 90% of the plant populations of the world. And this is where the rubber meets the road because the mycorrhizal is responsible ultimately for getting the mineral component of energy, which is phosphorus, up into the top of the plant so that the plant can then get involved with what's known as the Krebs energy cycle using that molecule called ATP, adenotriphosphate. So phosphorus is part of the molecule called ATP, and this guy is predominantly responsible for making sure that ATP is formed because it produces a compound or an enzyme called phosphatase enzyme, which fractures the marriage of calcium and phosphorus, iron and phosphorus, aluminum and phosphorus, releases the phosphorus so that it can migrate up into the, uh, into the plant, producing this wonderful molecule that allows that plant to continue its energy 
um, determinations of, of producing uh, ATP for the Krebs cycle. And what you see here, and this is out of uh, uh, Trace Elements and Other Essential Nutrients by David Watts, uh, what you see here is the estimated uh, contribution of extra uh, hyphae that are, that are uh, the percentages of clover on, and on corn, phosphorus, zinc, and copper. And what this tells you is that zinc and copper in white clover and maize plants grown in this particular compartmented boxes, what you see is that the phosphate levels go way up, you know, in terms of the uh, associations of the roots and the hyphae. So in other words, when phosphorus is released, also zinc gets released, copper gets released, what else gets released? It's really, really important. That's also released because it's tied up with phosphorus, and that's calcium. And you can't build quality proteins, and you can't build energy in the cell membrane, which is usually pectin, unless you release calcium. Because the energies in plants like grasses and clovers and maize are calcium pectates. And that's bound up with that phosphorus, and that phosphorus has to be split from the calcium in this particular case. And it's done by the mycorrhizal enzymes called phosphatase enzymes. And what this shows you here is the farther away you get from the root, you know, the lower those enzymes um, uh, become. So this VAM stands for the glomulus or the mycorrhizal, and this is without the mycorrhizal inoculate. So you see it's already low without the mycorrhizal. It's much higher with the mycorrhizal. But the farther you get away from the root, then it starts to drop off. Uh, that is that enzyme that splits that calcium phosphate bond. All right, dry away to phosphorus uptake of wheat. Um, grown in a mixed culture of phosphorus-deficient soils at a pH of 6,5, which is a good pH, and supplied with rock phosphate and nitrate nitrogen. What do you see here is when you have um, separate and intertwining roots. Now, this is the case for biodiversity. And some of the work that's being done with the annual crops at the Land Institute is all about what? They're trying to find perennial grains because we want to get away from plowing so we don't lose our topsoil. And if you read Jared Diamond's work, Survive, if you read um, Professor Loudermilk's work, which is now published by the NRCS, we know that a, that a topsoil is all that keeps us as a civilization here. And those, those civilizations that have lost their topsoil have lost their civilizations. Thus, the Land Institute is primarily gained on are focused on trying to put together perennial grains because they know, as everybody in this room knows, we're going to never stop growing grain, are we? We're just addicted to that stuff for many, many reasons. So as long as we're going to grow this stuff, it would be great if we could grow a perennial gr grain that does not have to be uh, subjecting the soil to tillage and thus erosion over and over and over again. Now that being said, what do we find out is, and this is particularly fabulous in perennial polycultures that deal with pastures, is that when you start getting an intertwining of just two plants, you can see the huge differences in phosphorus uptake on, on these plants, just because there's an intertwining, an intermingling, and an and, and unknown, an unquantifiable symbiosis of when you get just two plants together and the increase of that protection of, of, of that plant's adversaries and the concentration of nutrients that come up into that plant. That's just two. So imagine what happens when you have a prairie that has 200 plants and 200 species of plants. And we don't see hardly 20 species in a pasture anymore, and that's considered not bad. 
Okay. So what comes out of this uh, mycorrhizal is this wonderful substance that was discovered as recently as 1996 by Sarah Wright of the USDA. And it's called glomalin or glomalin, depending on which way you want to pronounce it. And this is the soil glue. They didn't know about this until 1996. I mean, this is really recent history, 1996. And what they found out about this glomalin is that it's probably the most important contributor to soil carbon of any other substance. We used to think that humic acids were the primary contributor to soil carbon. And humic acids are very important. I'm going to talk about the importance of humic acids as chelating compounds and buffers. But in terms of building soil carbon, this is, this is the creme de la creme of soil carbon right here, is the glomalin. It's a glycoprotein, which means it consists of sugars and proteins. And it creates a very, very resistant sort of complex where it doesn't erode. Uh, up to 40% of the soil carbon will be this glomalin. Up to 8% of the soil carbon would be humates. Big difference, five times as much. And we only discovered this in 1996. We also know this stuff is like super glue. We also know it has a property similar to PVC. It's hydrophobic, that means it repels water. What does that mean? It lasts in the soil up to 40, 50, 60 years without breaking down and washing away. Years ago, when I was just an early agronomist, back in the 70s, early 80s, I always was intrigued by how a monocultured crop, corn after corn after corn, with no cover crop, no rotation, could hold organic matter in our Pennsylvania loamy clay soils at about 2% or slightly thereunder. I never could figure out, well, why doesn't it just completely disappear? And that's why. Because there's still glomalin hanging on that keeps that... That, that, that 2%, as low as that is and as undesirable as that is, with all that abuse, decades of abuse, no cover crops, no rotation, still hanging in there at 2%, 2.2%, 2.5%, .2 and not disappearing. And it's the glomalin that stayed put. Now, in the tropics, it disappears a lot faster than that maximum number of years, except Hawaii. And they don't know why. In Costa Rica, it goes pretty quickly because it biodegrades. The biology is much stronger there. The temperatures are higher there. But for some reason, in Hawaii, there's places in Hawaii that they estimate it's been around for 500 years. 500 years. They think it perhaps may be the high iron levels in your soils over there. We've got a Hawaiian up here. Hawaiian punch we got up here. So, yeah. Um, so this glomalin is really where the rubber meets the road on building soil carbon. And interestingly enough, all we've got to do is increase the soil organic matter worldwide by a mere 1%, and we can sequester the excess carbon dioxide that everybody's freaking out about. Within a number of, a few, few, few years, literally, we can sequester all, we're at a supposedly 375 parts per million, and we'd like to get down to, ideally, 275 parts per million. There's a quote-unquote reasonable goal at 350 parts per million. But 1% improvement of organic matter worldwide, now that's all around the world, we could get rid of all of it. And it's one of the things that I think we really re need to recognize. It's not just about removing the carbon dioxide in the air. Because the carbon dioxide, if it is removed out of the air, and it is sequestered into the soil, what do you end up with? Humus. And if you have humus, you have, you know, the icing on the cake and the cake. 
Because now you have true soil fertility that's based on gazillions of species interacting with one another in the root systems and efficiently producing, you know, the top, which we call food, at a fraction of the cost, of a fraction of a fraction of the cost that we're currently spending on prehistoric sunlight, which is oil, to make fertilizers and to have diesel fuel and, and transportation and drying and processing to grow food. So this glomelin, this crumb structure, comes from glomelin. When you see that aerated soil and you see the crumbs and the aggregates, there's aggregates there because each particular crumb is coated in this superglue of glomelin, and it's hydrophobic, again, so it doesn't wash away. And in fact, you can do a glomelin test just by taking like a CMT paddle that we use for cows to test for mastitis and just swirl distilled water around it, and you can see the level of glomelin that's in that, in that material by how quickly the soil dissolves. If it dissolves quickly, the glomelin levels are low. If it doesn't dissolve based on the aggregates, you know there's a strong levels of glomelin there. To extract glomelin in the lab takes a lot, of, a lot of work. It's 250 degrees Fahrenheit and a strong citric acid bath just to get that stuff out of there. That's how tenacious this stuff is. So we find out that when you have plowed ground, you might have about a half a percent of that uh, soil carbon as glomelin. You get into grasslands, and you're maybe up to 3% six times as much. And you get into some of these really odd soils that are isolated in, in different parts of the world, you can get up to 10%, 10%. So you're talking about an incredible substance that we lose. And the enemies of glomelin, you know, are that we have to take care of the soil so that we don't dissolve that glomelin. Well, there's different enemies of, 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 of that. Um, the rhizosphere, remember, is feeding those organisms. What's making the glomelin is the fungi. What's making that superglue are those mycorrhizal. And what we look at root exudates, we say, well, what is the nectar of the roots? We always get infatuated with the nectar of the blossom for good reason. It's very attractive because we have olfactory senses that can smell the magic that's in the plant through the nectar that comes out through the perfume which is, of course, there to attract pollinators. But we also have, besides sugar being dumped down into the soil, we have amino acids, we have phenolic compounds, nucleotides, fats, gums, resins. We have non-water-soluble compounds. We have gases. If you smell really good soil and you pick it up, what do you smell? You smell the volatiles, the aromatics, what we would call essential oils on the top of the plant, we have these aromatic compounds similar to the essential oils in the top of the plant. And by the way, those, those compounds are considered communication molecules. They're also disinfectants, you might want to call them, or naturally occurring antibiotics that keep plants uh, protected from diseases. But you can smell the aromatics. Good topsoil has a very strong aromatic, pleasant smell. Not necessarily like cinnamon, but, you know, I, I always find it interesting that when you have you know, a bouquet of wine, and you have wine aficionados. I have a cousin who's a wine snob, so I know, I know what he's talking about. You know, it tastes like all these things, right? It tastes like cinnamon and blackberry and yada, yada, yada. And the only thing it doesn't taste like is dirty socks, you know, and then you have really bad wine, right? But it's all these, like, you know, fragrances, and I'm going, to me, it tastes like wine. <laughs> it tastes like fermented grape juice. It's good. It's not good. It tastes like dirty socks or whatever, but... Um, those, there's thousands of combinations of these compounds. That's the bouquet. I mean, really what, what they're saying is there's a bouquet that comes from the soil based on this soup 
of compounds that are in there. So here's the other thing that we get really crazy uh, excited about is this mucilage. And this is the mucus. And all animals produce mucus. And I'm not talking about the flu mucus when you blow your nose. That's good mucus too, by the way. I'm talking about the mucus that protects and lines all of these passageways that you know, we have in our bodies that uh, collect and um, um, offensive kinds of invaders. And that's the same is true in the plant kingdom. And it pr produces this compound called mucigel. And what it's obviously there for is to protect the plant, the plant roots, because they're constantly growing and moving. So it's sort of a lubricant. Uh, it increases the uptake of the ions. It improves the soil and root contact, especially in dry soils. There's your moisture. How do you think uh, desert plants survive? in these dry soils. They produce a lot of mucigel, a lot of mucigel, which is really the way of conserving water. And by the way, that's how animals conserve water. We produce a lot of mucus that holds the water in place, and then that mucus is used for many, many purposes to protect the lining of the GI tract and so forth. Um, we make aggregates along with that glomalin with it. And interestingly enough, dry soils, as I just said, produce more mucilage than wet soils do because they need the water. They need the water. It helps you take up trace minerals more efficiently, and it binds with heavy metals. And by the way, plants detoxify heavy metals out of the body the same way animals and humans do. They use an enzyme called glutathione. Glutathione is an enzyme, or glutathione S-transferase is an enzyme that consists of um, three amino acids and some trace elements. And so when plants get poisoned by heavy metals, and I'm going to talk about this earlier because there's an interesting... Um, site in Pennsylvania that's a Superfund site that's being reclaimed by uh, this kind of phenomena. We don't even understand what's going on, except what's going on there defies explanation scientifically, and it's literally a miracle. And, and, uh, and you're going to be really excited to see what's going on there in Pennsylvania at the Superfund site. Then plants make protective compounds called PSMs, plant secondary metabolites. Some people refer to them as phenolic compounds. And what are they? Well, they're the compounds that you find in the fruit, in the leaf, uh, and, and, and to some extent in the root. The purpose being, these are the protective mechanisms that plants have figured out how to produce because they can't run away from their enemies. They can't run away from sunlight, so they don't have sunscreen, so they make their own sunscreen. They can't run away from bacteria and fungi. They can't run away from animals that overgraze them. So they change the chemistry of, of their sap so that they have resistance to diseases. And we know, have known for years that the association between these plant secondary metabolites starts with adequate amounts of minerals in the soil coupled up with biology that produces these compounds that are flushed up in the upstairs. Up in the University of Vermont back in the 80s, I was a member of the uh, Forestry Association back then. In the 1980s, we had a major problem in the Northeast with the gypsy moth. Gypsy moth was devastating um, the forest of both evergreens and deciduous trees. They were a ravenous pest, indiscriminate eaters. They would completely defoliate a forest. If you've ever been in a gypsy moth forest when it was being defoliated, it's pouring rain of caterpillar shit. That's what it is. It's, a, it's literally, it's like a rainstorm of caterpillar dung coming down on top of you. And it's it, loud. It sounds like rain. That's how much manure has fallen off the trees. And the forest is completely denuded. And the forest has one more chance to put out a, a new growth of leaves, to not die, to put out the energy to, to a whole new growth of leaves. And hopefully it doesn't get tacked a second time. 
because it doesn't have the energy to withstand repeated attacks like that. So, obviously, we're spraying these forests with poisons to kill these caterpillars, which, of course, has its own consequences of killing the um, invertebrates in our aquifers, I mean, excuse me, in our surface waters, as well as poisoning everybody. And so they were doing studies on this gypsy moth in these greenhouses at the University of, of New Hampshire. And what did they find out? Well, they said, okay, let's grow some coniferous seedlings in the greenhouse, release these caterpillars in there, and start examining the sap of these plants to see what happens. And they found out that over time, the sap changed, the chemistry of the sap changed to make themselves unpalatable, and thus those particular gypsy moths slowed up and stopped feeding. That's interesting. But what was really interesting is across campus, another greenhouse that also was planted with evergreen seedlings, was not challenged with the caterpillar, and what do you think happened to its sap? It too changed. So this corroborates the work that Pop did that says that nature communicates with light photons. Light photons and other moleculars. It had to be light because you're talking about plants that are in greenhouses. So there's no way you could have gases go from greenhouse A to green, across, out of the greenhouse, across campus, inside of another greenhouse, and, and educate those plants that they're about to be attacked by gypsy moths. It's light, all right, and, and it's photonic emissions at the cell membrane. So what we have is over 80,000 isolated compounds. By the way, these are the medicines that, you know, you're selling in health food stores these days. These are the medicines that university medical researchers are identifying in hospitals that say these are the things that make up um, medicine. This is the medicine of food. It's, it accumulates in the fats and proteins of animals, all right? It's in all the fruits. It's only in all the vegetables. And I, always, I do a talk, food is medicine talk, that goes into detail what these compounds are, things like resveratrol and grapes, pterostilabine and blueberries, ellagic acid and raspberries, and, and all these compounds, these 80,000 compounds, that downregulate inflammation in humans, invigorate the immune system, detoxify, balance the endocrine system, and so on. We get all these benefits because plants are trying to make sunscreen and not succumb to insects and diseases. And they make all these attractants for color so that they can be pollinated. This is part of the reproductive process. All this color, by the way, where does it come from? Ultimately, it comes from the soil. And so you have thousands upon thousands of, of pollinators, uh, birds, wasps, bees, butterflies, flies themselves, beetles and bats. And so we know it starts in the soil in, in tandem with carbon dioxide. Uh, soil chemistry is involved, and we have all these secondary plant, plant metabolites, all of these huge numbers of compounds. We don't have even a, 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 a scratch and sniff card to ascertain a fraction of what's being produced. We know this much about plant secondary metabolites, and yet that's a lot. And we've all learned this, by the way, in the last couple of decades. This is all new information, all new information. And we know this much it's a massive amount of information, but it's still literally a scratch on the sniff card in terms of what's going on down there in that root system. And what this shows you is that um, this, this graph here shows you that these tannins, which are part of the plant secondary metabolites, why do they call it tannin? Tanning leather came from that. Well, when you have leaves coming off deciduous trees and they fall into the water, you know, oftentimes there's so many of these oak leaves, maple leaves, hardwood tree leaves, they actually change the color of the water into a tea. 
And we now know that that tea, those tannins that are in that water, actually disinfect the water. They cleanse the water for the same reason that they cleanse us and they invigorate the immune system of animals. They do the same thing to the macroinvertebrates that are living in the water by purifying the water. These are very strong cleansers. Tannins are used as, as parasiticides. Did you know that? That's one of the reasons why animals who are on a very biodiverse diet, including humans, eat a lot of tannins in all of these condensed tannins in all of these compounds that are in these foods. You don't get parasites because these things inhibit the growth of parasites. Cryptosporidia, coccidiosis, worms don't do well. So here's nature cleansing its streams with plant tannins. Every fall is a fall purge. Those leaves fall in there. I live on a stream on my property, and there's so many leaves in there, and they accumulate on the rocks. You know how the rocks trap them? Pick them up sometime, pull them out of the rock, and you'll see this decomposition going on with those leaves. And what do you see? A tremendous amount of tannin being squeezed out like a sponge. And streams eventually uh, have eddies, and those, those tannins accumulate. I used to, when I was in summer camp as a kid, uh, we used to go to this one particular uh, lake um, down in uh, Blackwood, and it was surrounded by cedar trees. There were so many tannins that were released by the cedar trees, and we would swim at the summer camp. We would come out uh, literally with two suntans because that's how much tannin was in the water. We actually were completely covered in tannins, completely harmless, but very healthy, actually, in some ways. So, so this is where the rubber meets the road. This is what's going on down here. You can see all those microorganisms. You see these root hairs coming out. This is the pulsing, okay? This is the rhythm. This is the heartbeat of that plant. These things get pushed out, all right? And then they recede, they die off, they leave this, this carbohydrate. All of these populations of microorganisms start to explode. The root tip keeps sloughing off, sloughing off, and it's constantly making this Petri dish of protein, and energy, what Albrecht called, and then every farmer who goes to, you know, an MBA course or, or uh, uh, a, a, a Neil Kinsey course, you'll hear the Albrecht model called what? The grow food and go food equation. All life needs grow foods, which are, which are what? Nitrogen protein based, and they need go foods, which are energy carbon based. And you have to reconcile those. People who are overweight get on the Atkins diet. They get on the 100% grow food regimen. The Atkins diet, all protein, steak and eggs, you lose weight, right? Because you start burning off the body fat. A balance is what everybody in nature is looking for from the microbe all the way up to the human. And so this grow food, go food tango is what creates pulsation and that creates more biomass, that creates more carbon, that creates more life, that creates more diversity, that creates more phytoalexins on the top, that creates happiness and stability and homeostasis. And you can see how the fractals show up again. This is basically intestinal tract. This, these are villi. I show these in my um, human courses and animal courses to show what damaged villi look like uh, compared to healthy villi. This I call bloom. That's a bloom of villi. These are healthy villi. These are damaged villi. The important part I'm bringing up in this discussion is this is fractal geometry. This is surface area. And the surface area is all about creating opportunity for reactions, opportunity for creating more habitat. When you have more habitat, you have more reactions. So nature is constantly trying to make more substance through surface area. And that's what farmers need to be recognizing when you're looking at your farm. I always say instead of buying more land horizontally or laterally, 
Buy more land by building more land vertically. You don't pay taxes on this land, you pay taxes on that land. Right? And if you have more fractal geometry, you get more of this kind of land that you don't pay taxes on and you get better returns on your investment. But what do we do? How do we settle this country? You know, we settle this country by, because the land was virtually free. You know, if you had a thousand acres in Georgia and Alabama, you burned it up with cotton and tobacco and you moved west, burned up another thousand. And another thousand. You know, George Washington, um, there's a book called, uh, there's a book on George Washington, Father of the Country book. And um, George Washington is excellently the name of the book. You know, George Washington was a farmer. And he was an English farmer. And he lived, of course, in Virginia. And like farmers are struggling today, he was subjected to brokers that dictated price and volumes as to what was going to the motherland, England. And those farmers were pretty frustrated because they had to take what they were going to be given and they had no control over price and they had no control over supply and demand. And one of the things he noticed was that the German farmers north of him on the Pennsylvania-Maryland border were a lot smaller in size and a lot more profitable. And the reason why they were a lot more profitable was because they didn't wear out their land. They had uh, uh, sustainable practices in place that didn't burn up their resources. Whereas the English farm model was, use it up and then move on, use it up and then move on. Well, that's pretty doggone wasteful and wasteful is expensive. The German farmers stayed put. They didn't move. They used animals. They managed manure. They did crop rotations in a very primitive kind of way. And he realized it was their farming practices that made them profitable and their size of management. And so what did he do? He adopted German farming practices that made his farm a lot more profitable. And as a consequence, you know, you might say not only the father of the country, he might be the father of sustainable agriculture being taught by his German um, neighbors. So this is something that, you know, we've kind of ignored because fossil fuels have been cheap, land has been cheap. Everything has been wastefully cheap because it's been subsidized one way or the other. I mean, basically, the sun subsidized us with the fossil fuels. That's prehistoric sunlight. And those days are gone, all right? So I just want to let you realize how this fractal architecture shows up and shows up and shows up. You know, here's fractal architecture again. This is the mycorrhizal, ectomycorrhizal growing around the root. These are, these are on evergreen seedlings. You'll see that. And there's a cross-section of it, and you can see that blue mycorrhizal film around it. it. Everything gets covered. So the more surface area you have, the more mycorrhizal you have covering the surface area. The more mycorrhizal you have covering the surface area, what does it produce? Glomalin. more glomalin you make. So surface area makes um, carbon, which makes humus, which makes topsoil. And we give so little credit to this ecosystem. We have freaking robots on Mars looking for microbes. Robots on Mars looking for microbes. And we estimate that 50% of the Earth's total biomass is microbial. That's amazing. But we don't know anything about it. We know nothing about it. There's more microbial cells on Earth than there's probably stars on the universe if you really wanted to get a headache about it. 80% of all the biodiversity is microbial. There's more microbial cells in and on humans I always talk about this in the human health classes. You know, you're 50 trillion cells. And there's more of them 
than there is of you. That should be a sobering thought to some people. But that's the fact. I, I contend it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy to move microbes all around the universe. And as long as we're not constipated, we will do that. Because we will deposit them. Because, uh, you know, manure of any animal is about 25 to 30% microbes by weight. That's a hell of a probiotic. That is. For the earth. You know, of course, what we do with our probiotics is we put it in industrial sewage treatment systems, mix it up with industrial soups, drugs, chemicals, heavy metals, and then flush it into the sea or put it in a landfill. That's a good place for it. That's a real good place for it. So, you know, it, it is about the microbe, and this stuff has been done a long time ago. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but when you look at, you know, 3 million to 500 million bacteria in one gram, Thousand milligrams has got that, that kind of numbers in it. Actinomycetes, fungi, protozoa, algae, yeast, and nematodes. These are massive numbers of, of organisms in very, very small amounts. And again, again, you get more amounts, whether it's grams of soil, grams of clay, if you have what? Flocculation. And what makes flocculation? Glomalin. What makes glomalin? Mycorrhizal. What makes mycorrhizal? Root systems. So it's, it's all about creating surface area and opportunity for habitat. These are ecosystems. We estimate there's two to three million species, a million and a half fungal species, and this is, I always find, not laughable because it's tragic. Only two to five percent have been described or named. But we have spent money and will continue to spend money putting robots on Mars because we're so intrigued about the microbes that might be on Mars. And we have no idea where we live. We have no idea who we are. And then there's the earthworm, of course, the nightcrawler, which everybody takes advantage of, and it's, an, it's, a, it's a great indicator of you know, soil biological activity because the earthworm really, I always tell people, the earthworm is really a hybrid between a chicken and a cow. And that always gets sort of a you know, funny reaction from people. If you look at how many people have I've dissected earthworms in high school, or elementary school, you know? So you know the earthworm has a brain. The very tiny brain. But that tiny little brain of that earthworm, that guy has figured out how to pull a leaf into a hole with the narrow end down first. Knows he's smart enough to know that if you're going to get that leaf to come down into that nightcrawler hole, you bring it into the narrow end down first. They never try to pull in the broad end. They already figured out to go out and check that leaf out. They grab it by the, by the narrow end and they pull it down. Now, here's where the, here's where the interesting similarities between poultry and ruminants are with an earthworm. An earthworm has got a gizzard like a chicken, which, of course, the reason why chickens and earthworms have a gizzard is because they have no teeth. That's the teeth of that organism. So here they take this high-carbon material, a leaf, and they grind it up with their gizzard, but it's not very edible because it's mostly lignin and carbohydrate, and there's very little protein in that material. So what do they do with that leaf? They grind it up into real small particles, and then they do what a ruminant does. They spit it back up. It's called chewing your cud. Except they don't have a cud. The hole, the burrow, is the cud, or at least the vesicle to hold the cud, I should say. And they take that uh, exudent, that chewed-up, masticated mass, and they slime the burrow with that exodent. 
And then they come back a few days later, after temperature and moisture have worked on that slimy mess, and they start to graze. And what do they graze? Yeast and bacteria, which are high in what? Protein. They're 60% protein. And that's what a ruminant does. A rumen makes its own microbial protein by taking various kinds of carbohydrates, right, and growing this big, huge population explosion in the rumen, and then it swallows and digests microbes as its protein. And that's the way you're supposed to feed ruminants. That's why they do well on grass. We're not supposed to feed them what we eat as a monogastric animal because their primary focus of of digestion and the creation of energy is through volatile fatty acids, which go right into the bloodstream directly from the rumen. They don't go downstream unless you start throwing grain in those animals. It's an incredibly efficient system. So this earthworm has this very similar sort of system. It comes back and grazes the yeast and the bacteria that it grows in the petri dish of that burrow by taking a worthless substance into a very valuable substance, just by having this tango of what? Go foods and grow foods, and letting microbes figure it out. This is just a reminder that you're listening to Tractor Time by Acres USA. Today's talk is by Jerry Brunetti called Soil as a Superorganism. We hope you're learning a lot from it. We're going to get right back to the second half of his speech very soon. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about Acres USA, you can find us at acresusa.com or at ecofarmingdaily.com, uh, or shoot us a note at podcast at acresusa.com and let us know what you think. Uh, anyway, here's Jerry Brunetti with the second half of his speech, Soil as a Superorganism. So we know that merely having uh, 2,000 worms gives you 125-pound castings a year. Merely having a million worms per acre, which is 25 worms per cubic foot, that's a spade square and a spade deep, gives you 62,000 pounds or 30 tons of worm manure per year. And if you think worm manure isn't so fancy, try working with some worm tea sometime. It's one of the most amazing substances known to man. In fact, they even use it in some countries for burn uh, medicine. It heals the skin of burns, worm tea. So here's how we learn in agronomy without ever realizing what we're learning. It's all about sand, silt, and clay. That's what I learned in agronomy in college. Sand, silt, and clay. What I didn't learn was that this is about fractal geometry and that organic matter intermingles with sand, silt, and clay to create this living mass of fractals that allow this huge surface area to occur. And it's not just, well, you have a sandy soil, therefore you need X number of units of nitrogen to grow a crop of corn. You have a loam, you need this many units of nitrogen. It was never about that, was it? It was never about, you know, understanding the architecture of the ecosystem. It was always about what do you need to grow how much, and we'll sell it to you. Because it was always about buying and selling some raw material that you needed to, to, to grow this crop instead of creating ecosystems. So anybody here of the Cox Snowflake? This is how you look at um, fractal geometry in very simple terms. This is what you learn in... in uh, in school, when you're learning how to be a, um, a draftsman, to learn about surface area, you start out with a triangle, you overset triangles, you keep oversetting triangles, you end up with the snowflake, and after a while, snowflakes become part of bigger land, uh, or I should say, what, what, what would be land masses here, 
Now, Maine is, is in my part of the country. I always use this as an example because if you look at the coast of Maine and you go from down here near Portland all the way up to New Brunswick, you've got a 300-mile drive thereabouts. Unless you were to take all those inulets and try to find your way up there, then you're talking about 3,000 miles. That's assuming you're a human being. And you're walking right up to the water's edge. What if you're a mouse? You're going to walk the same distance? If you're going up to the water's edge, you're going to walk farther. What if you're a microbe? How far can you take it? This is fractal infinity, surface area. Okay, so this is your soil, potentially, when you've got this kind of surface area. And when you're looking at a microbe, and this kind of fractal infinity, it virtually becomes infinite. That's why plants do the kinds of unimaginable things that they're able to do, is because of the fact that they have this potential that they've created with, you know, all these substrates, biochemical substrates that create this fantastic inner surface. It's unimaginable inner surface. Here's a, another um, high school experiment that you could do. Try to burn a nail, you can't do it. Turn it into really fine steel wool and put a match up against it. What happens? Steel wool ignites. If it was magnesium, it would blow up. It would blow up if it was really finely ground up into a dust. Now, that's not even a dust. That's just steel wool on fire. So this is a fractal infinity computergram that shows you that you can keep going and going and going and that's what nature does and that's what ecological farming ultimately gives you is this potential so that the surface area and that's why you want to have as many plants as much polyculture as you possibly can have particularly if you're a grazer particularly if you're a grass-based system where you want to have as many of these plants because the more variety you have the more exudates you produce. The more exudates out of the root that you produce that are made on the top and dropped down the bottom. Remember, 30 to 50% of what's made on the top is dropped down on the bottom. The more diversity of microbes you get, the more diversity of microbes you get, the more exudates they produce. The more exudates they produce, the more soil reactions and fractal surfaces you get. So diversity is the key to making this thing sustainable. So... When you get down to the cellular level, this is um, Lewis Thomas's quote. There's a tendency for living things to join up, establish linkages, live inside each other, return to earlier arrangements, get along wherever possible. It's the way of the world. It's not this competitive Darwinian, you know, um, the strong man wins, that there's this vicious competitive, competitiveness out there. Collaboration is what makes nature so resilient, not competition. Collaboration. And you can see that in the human body. If you're a holistic practitioner, you can see the collaborative effects of the cell, for example. The mitochondria used to be outside the cell in primitive organisms, and now it lives inside the cell. It has its own DNA, separate from the cellular DNA. What is the mitochondria? It's the furnace of the cell. It's where you burn your fuel in the mitochondria. It has its own DNA. Okay? So... When you're looking at a cell membrane, whether it's a plant cell or an animal cell, what you realize is down here, now you want to talk about fractal geometry? All right, 
try to put the pocket calculator to this one. You're 50 trillion cells. Cell membrane, you've got in that cell, you've got 500,000 uh, uh, production centers in that cell that produce enzymes, hormones, and all kinds of things. 500,000 per cell times 50 trillion. And then on top of that, there's 100,000 biochemical reactions every single second in harmony. Now, that could be plants, it could be animals, but we're talking, in this case, animals being a human 50 trillion. What's running that bus? Where does the coherence come from? How can this thing be so incredibly vast? This is an internal universe. 500,000 production centers per cell, 50 trillion cells, 100,000 biochemical reactions every single second. And it's organized, unless you're sick. Unless you're sick. And that's all about coherence based on light. Because remember, light travels at what speed? 186,000 miles per second. Remember the New Hampshire greenhouses? That's how it can be done at the speed of light. And, and it's been measured. The photonic emissions that come out of the cell go through the cell membrane, and we know when plants and when animals are damaged with poisons and not nourished at the same time, the coherence gets scrambled based on the fact that the emissions that are coming through the cell membrane are not the right signals. They become scrambled. So this is the guy, if you go Google this guy, you'll see an awful lot about uh, Fritz Albert Pop's work on photonic emissions. And it doesn't matter what life form you're talking about. It all works on light. So essentially what we're saying is all life. Isn't it nice to know that human beings are really beings of light? In spite of what we do. In spite of what we don't do. We're actually beings of light. And those, according to Pop, that are sick, those that struggle with cancer, what's happening is their light actually is going out. Because the scrambling at the cell membrane, the damage of the cell membrane, is scrambling the emissions that are coming out of the center of the mitochondria, and the light's going out. Some of the work they did with mitogenic, mitogenic resonance, where they took pig blood, put it in test tubes made out of quartz crystal. Quartz crystal. And they challenged the blood with antigens to create antibodies, a reaction like you get from a vaccine in that blood, and then they put those tubes next to the tube that was treated, and guess what happened to the other tubes? Antibody responses from the same blood. Different pigs. Antibody responses. So if you think living close to somebody doesn't affect how they think and how they feel and how healthy they are and whether or not your attitude doesn't affect the whole village... The village? I'm not talking about the family. I'm talking about probably the city. It's no wonder why we're nuts. You know? All you need is one bad apple in the basket. The whole thing goes down. So, but that's how effective this stuff is. We are that sensitive to what's going on all around us all the time. And, and we're unconscious of it. But we're not unconscious of it. You don't have to be some ESP woo-woo person. This is going on with everybody. You have to be aware of the fact that, you know, and it's interesting, you know, one dab of a woman's perspiration on another woman's upper lip will synchronize heats. It's called menstruation, of course, with women, but in, in, with cows we call it heats. 
right? Um, but, you can, but just one dab of perspiration right there on the upper lip will synchronize menstruation. That's called coherence. This is what this is about. This is coherence. We're all in it together. So they say, women who live together do what together? <laughs> they talk together. Especially if men are around. And especially, especially if men aren't around, right? Okay, so Fritz Albert Pop did some work with paramagnetic rock. And he, he put this stuff in his lab. He measured it with his pho, uh, photon multiplier evaluator. And he found that this rock in particular had about 4,000 photons coming out of it. When he dumped it in with some equal amounts of compost, it skyrocketed up to 400,000 photons. So there is life, if you want to call it that, in rock. There's light that comes out of everything. And some of the other scientists have proven this, like Gaston Naissance, with the somatids and so forth. But when you put life with inert substances, you magnify the life reaction. So minerals and biology create this perfect storm, wonderful perfect storm. An orchestra of many instruments, but one sound. That's what quantum coherence is. Isn't it interesting that that whole orchestra is playing? If one French horn is out of whack, you don't hear the orchestra, you hear the French horn, right? Stands out like a sore thumb. That one instrument that is off stands out like a sore thumb. And you see it in nature. Schools of fish, flocks of birds, they turn on a dime, don't they, at the same time? Anybody ever watch huge flocks of birds all of a sudden instantaneously flip direction? Hey, Joe, I'm making a left. Wait up. And they do it just like that. Dr. John Todd, Ocean Arcs International. What did he make? Quantum coherence with bioremediation of waste, municipal, industrial, and biological. What are these? These are called living machines. These are waste components where ugly waste comes in here and it goes downstream and finishes down here. What the really bad stuff you can see doesn't have a lot of growth in it. And then as you start going downstream, more and more introductions of plant life, animal life show up with the primitive microbes, the most primitive microbes being up here. They're the ones that can take the lousiest environments. And as the environment gets cleaned up, more and more life forms show up. And I'm going to show you what's going on in Pennsylvania very similar to this. Well, this is interesting because each one of these cells are all connected to each other. Every one of these, 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 these and they're large columns. This is looking from the top down. That's, you know, these things are about eight feet tall. But each one of these containers is hooked up with all the rest of the other containers. And the purpose of that is what? Communication. So that everybody in the family knows what everybody else is being exposed to. So why? So they can adjust. Because this stuff is flowing downhill, and everybody knows it's coming long before it shows up. And they adjust the chemistry, they adjust the biology, they adjust you know, everything to make sure that they don't get clobbered by this contaminant. And in the process of staying alive, what do they do to the water? They purify it. They purified. It's an amazing, simple system that works in a very complex way. And yet, if you deal with modern engineering solutions to pollution, what is it? 
millions and millions of dollars of brick and mortar and machinery, and the water that still ends up in our waterways is still foul, still loaded with pharmaceutical drugs, because our wastewaters are now loaded with drugs because all of America is on some kind of medication, antibiotics, hormones, statins, and those don't break down in conventional treatment plants. Conventional treatment plants, all they do is they hit it with ferric chloride to knock out the solids, and then that becomes the sludge that they do whatever they do with it, usually landfill it or burn it. And then the water, the effluent, gets spiked with chlorine to kill the bacteria and it gets dumped back in the rivers. But they don't take out all these things that we put in it besides bacteria. They don't take out all these pharmaceuticals. They don't take out all these hormones and all these compounds that are disrupting aquatic ecosystems profoundly, disrupting them. And downstream on that river, there's another city that has a water treatment plant that's taking that water in. What do they do with that water? They hit it with something to knock out the solids, and they spike it with chlorine, and then you drink it. And you still get pharmaceutical drugs. If you don't believe me, go to the EPA website, and you will see what's in all of the streams and rivers in the United States. They're all contaminated with drugs. Just say no. Remember that? Just say no. And my ass, just say no. Plant archipelagos. What are, pla- what are archipelagos? An archipelago is kind of like a, a, a chain of islands, right? So what we find out in, in, in nature that we have pioneer plants that start the archipelago when they start recolonizing, let's say, a barren wasteland. What do we have? And there's pioneer, the pioneer plants are ambrosia and artemisia. Artemisia is another word for wormwood. What is ambrosia? Everybody loves to swear at ambrosia. What is it? Ragweed. Ragweed is a pioneer plant to create archipelagos. That's why it shows up. So if you see a lot of ragweed in the system, what do you see? Soils that want to move beyond this static bad place. I know we look at ragweed and try to manage it with, you know, uh, whether it's organically with cultivation, but ragweed is one of those plants that's saying, I want to take this away from what it is and move it to a higher plateau. A higher plateau. Hedgerows are the same things. They're archipelagos. Introducing new experiences, introducing new influences on the land is with the hedgerows. They're not just windbreaks, and they're not just medicine bars for animals, which is what I always talk about them in, in, with a lot deal of enthusiasm. They are archipelagos. And that's an archipelago. How do you introduce new life forms, inoculate the ground? You need animals. You need animals to bring all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of species, billions and billions of organisms per pat out there on the land. Animal agriculture is vital to introducing diversity. Now this guy, Albert Schatz, he just passed away a couple years ago. He's the one who discovered streptomycin. And as you know, most of the antibiotics have been discovered from soil microbes, penicillin, tetracycline, cephalosporins. They're all soil microbes. They produce antibiotics to protect themselves. And we figured out how to isolate them and then synthesize them, make lots of money, and poison the planet with them. You know, in 1946, there was like 32 quarts of penicillin as the world's entire source 
of antibiotics. And today in the United States alone, we produce 50 million pounds a year that we dump 60% of into animal feeds, which is why our waterways and our bodies and our villages and our cities are all loaded with antibiotics because it's in the air. It's on the antibiotic uh, dander and dust that flows off the feedlots. It's in the water. But anyway, he discovered a very effective antibiotic a long time ago called streptomycin. And one of the things he was interested in is since he was a soil scientist that discovered a medicine from soil, he had a very interesting fascination with um, chelation in soil. And he wrote a paper on it in 1954 called Chelation as a Biological Weathering Factor in Pediogenesis. Pediogenesis is the making of soil. All right? This guy's a soils guy right? and a medicine guy. He wrote another paper in 1963 called The Importance of Metal Binding Phenomena in the Chemistry and Microbiology of the Soil. Nobody would publish it in the United States, so it was published in India in this publication called Advancing Frontiers of Plant Science in 1963. Well, he was intrigued about chelation because he thought one of the ways that soil is made is through this chelating process. So he was reading um, Hiram Bingham's uh, work, journal, on the lost city of the Incas on Machu Picchu and also Cusco, right? And what he found out, this guy became a U.S. senator, what did he find out about this, is they had these huge... Uh, stone cities. And the, and the stone walls were massive. This is a fortress behind Machu Picchu. In fact, the Spaniards never even knew Machu Picchu was there. It was so hidden. And the small blocks of those stones were 20 tons, and the big ones were up to 300 tons. The interesting thing about it was uh, all the explorers of this facility found you couldn't even stick a penknife in the cracks between the stones. That's how smooth and how well designed the cutting was. And they said, how the heck did they cut these blocks with such precision that you can't even stick a penknife in the seam of any of these massive stones that are 20 tons to 300 tons in size? So he started doing some research on this, and they found out that there was um, reports coming up from British explorers that were in the Amazon that found out from the natives that this bird, called the pito bird, actually makes its dens in solid rock by using a plant called the Harakea ama plant that has these chelating chemicals in it that softens rock into mud. And they estimated that the Incas knew this, and they used this uh, Harakea ama plant to rub it against these rocks as they were grinding it down with primitive stones. They didn't have, you know, stone cutters like we have here. I mean, my gosh, we've got, you know, diamond-tipped, you know, blades and tungsten-tipped steel. These were stone-cutting stone, you know. And they found out that this is probably what had happened. This is a chelating kind of compound. So this guy, uh, Schott's really interested in understanding how nature day-to-day, everyday chelates compounds to make them more available and accessible. And so you looked at lichen as a chelating therapy for soil, because this is where soil starts on rock. It starts in up our neck of the woods with this compound uh, that has 36 of the dry weight as chelators, they estimate, in lichen. And lichen, of course, is a, a, is a, a mixture, a symbiotic relationship between algae, which, which photosynthesizes, therefore makes sugar, 
And a fungi, which doesn't photosynthesize, but has the ability to mine minerals out of the rock to feed the algae the minerals that it needs. And the algae feeds the sugar that it fixes with photosynthesis back to the, to the fungi. And that's what lichen is. And they estimate that this might be what's referred to in the Bible as biblical mana, because it's very, very nutritious. And the reason why that estimation was made is because in Japan and in China, lichen is a very relished, high-protein, high-carbohydrate food. Protein comes from where? The algae. Carbohydrates are coming from the lichen. So it's a relished food, very nutritious, growing on rock. This is nature making soil. Now we get into the humic acids. You know, the chelating agents in organic soils, which of course are produced by plants in tandem with the fauna and the flora, microlife of the soil. And we know that they're amphoteric, so they can chelate negatively charged particles, anions, and they can chelate positively charged particles, cations. Not surprisingly, because soil contains both anions and cations. So if you're going to have a chelator that's made by the soil microlife, it should be able to hold and chelate all the compounds negatively and positively charged that are in there. So there was a British soil scientist, Siegfried Marion, who said, you know, we shouldn't be burning coal. It contains this biogenic carbon from prehistoric plants. We should be saving our coal for future rehabilitation of the soil with carbon. And, of course, Fritz Albert Popp talked about the biophotons that are emitting from the living cells. You had Gaston Naissons, who said the, the essence of life are these particles called somatids, or basic energy units that are precursors to life. That's the basic unit. And then you had German scientist Wilhelm Reich. He talked about them as bions, bions, as non-living elements, precursors to life. There were numerous scientists that did this, and they found out that humic acids were really discovered to be, the ones that are used today in agriculture, were discovered in the oil industry because when they were drilling for oil and they would hit these salt domes, they would wear out the bits. And they found out that by taking this oxidized coal called lignite or lenardite and they'd throw it down the well, it would eat the salt because it was such a powerful chelator. And then they said, well, if you take that same, if it eats salt, therefore you can take humates and put it on sodic soils. In other words, these soils that have what's called saline creep, buildup of sodium that makes, renders that soil inhospitable to grow crops. And so it got its agricultural uh, baptism, you might say, in the oil industry. Now, humic acids are, are, are stabilizing complex deletable anions. Now, this is important because anions are those things that typically leave. Why? Soil has a negative charge. Anions have a negative charge. Negative repels negative. So how do you hold on to these things? With humus, humus rich in, in, in these humic acids, well, here's some of the most important ones. Boron is very, very critical for many things in the soil, like moving calcium, sugar, uh, movement, cell division, selenium, is used by the plants, by the way, as well as animals, for one of the most strong immune responses to protect them against infection. Sulfur, a detoxifier. Chromium for energy transfer. Nitrogen to build proteins. Iodine for what? You know, in animals especially, many endocrine functions, particularly the master thermostat gland called the thyroid. And molybdenum, which is, of course, used in, in nature to fix nitrogen with leguminous um, uh, plants. And also nitrogen detoxification in animals and people. And these humic compounds hold on to these very fragile, very elusive, very runaway type elements called anions that are very critical for a number of bodily uh, and plant kingdom functions. 
And they increase this plant cell membrane permeability by 35%. Well, permeability means what? You get more in and you get more waste out. Cell permeability is one of the major issues in human health is that we have rigid cell membranes because we eat so much bad fat. And it makes those cell membranes less permeable. Therefore, they don't, they're not able to take in nutrients readily. They're not able to get rid of waste readily. So they die prematurely and they get cancer. So now let's get into the water element. Since most of all we look at, whether it's in soils or whether it's in the planet, whether it's in animals, whether it's in people, comprise water, shouldn't it be a fact that water, the nature of water, or as I, I like Jennifer Green's uh, phrase, the wateriness of water shouldn't be looked at. And when you look at what water is, it's, it's the medium between the forces of Earth, particularly that called gravity, and the cosmos, that which is anti-gravity. We know there's anti-gravity in that respect because you ever see capillary action? Capillary action in the root, water moves up north, particularly if the plant is dead, you see it. That's called wicking. That's anti-gravity. That's based on this particular phenomena that water is blessed with, which is to defy gravity. Now, I live on a stream. One of the things I like to do a lot is, is, is handle rock. I like to build things with rock, and we have a lot of cobblestone in that stream. And it's always interesting, you know, how you see round rocks we call cobble in a river or stream. It, it once started out as some amorphous boulder on a cliff. It fell down through gravity into the stream, and now it's weathered on the edges, and it's eventually made into a sphere, which is round. Now that thing can roll. And gravity is still responsible for the, for the boulder or the cobble rolling. Grinds it down, grinds it down. Over time, that's where you get gravel. Over time, that's where you get sand. It's the, it's the rolling, the spherical rolling of this boulder based on gravity. But rivers don't just do that, do they? Rivers just don't go from the top to the bottom in a straight line like a pipe. That's how we plumb things because it's efficient to plumb things with pipes. Rivers don't do that. Rivers meander. Have you ever flown over a flat floodplain? And the water should go straight from here to there because there's a slight incline, nothing to stop it. And what does it do? It snake-likes all the way to the estuary. Now, why would water do that? Why does water do that? And the real answer to that is water is, is one of those elements that rolls. It doesn't flow this way. It flows side to side, side to side. And by flowing side to side, it's nature's way of building topsoil out of water. Because if we had all of this erodible force only at work, all the soil that's being created with these rocks falling down into it, creating first gravel, then sand. Now, if you've ever been in a flood and you're in the channel, what happens to the water in the channel? Does it come this way head on? Well, yeah, but what else does it do? It's throwing everything this way. And that's how floodplains are built. It's ejecting everything sideways. And that's because water is rolling, and it's rolling, and it's rolling, and it's constantly building topsoil and floodplains. Nature builds soil through water being water. Now, that being said, you can see this is anti-gravity at work. What these are are water vortexes coming up out of the bottom of a pond. This is water moving upward. And you can see how it's, it's shaped. You can see how there's this pulsing 
factor to it. Doesn't this kind of look like a jellyfish? The architecture, you can see it over and over again. You see this architecture all the time, this plume. How many people have heard of the Archimedes principle? Right? Well, you know what that is. So when I'm in that creek and I'm lifting this incredibly heavy boulder that would rip every disc out of my back, and I can get it up this far and, until I get to shore, then I can't lift it anymore. <laughs> but how did I get it lifted up? What, what allowed that rock to be lifted up what anti-gravity force was working with my body to lift that rock up? Well, the Archimedes principle is they now know that when you have an object in water, water pressure acts on all the surfaces of that object. So here's a column of water that's that deep, whatever it is, and it's, it's showing up right here or it's showing up right here. But underneath that rock, the column of water is much larger. So it's gravity being used in reverse. The column of water is pushing down and then pushing up because the column here is longer than the column here. That's the Archimedes principle. That's why you can lift something really heavy in water. It's water defying itself, or water defying gravity, actually. So based on that, that's why plants can grow up. That's how water can flow up. That's how wicking can occur. It's based on the fact there's an anti-gravity effect that's actually influenced by cosmic influences, and we know that very, very obviously with what particular cosmic influence? The moon and the tides and how the moon affects moods, how the moon affects all kinds of things, but the moon isn't the only body, only celestial body up there, is it? Just because the moon looks the biggest doesn't mean it's the most influential. Those stars that are up there are bigger than our sun the ones that we see. And we have no idea what the influence is, but there's a heck of a lot of activity going on up there, and we know water is very, very receptive to it. And so what you have here is this, you know, making of the planet through the forces of water that both obey the laws of the earth, which is gravity, and obey the laws of the cosmos, which is anti-gravity. And that's how, that's how water plays a role in the movement of material and substance. It's so responsive that there's times if you... I have a pond also, and I know this is true, but it's, it's, it has the sensitivity of the inner ear, water does. And so because it's so sensitive, it responds to wind when there's not even any wind. And so you see these wrinkles on the water. If you have a pond and you throw a rock in that pond, the entire pond responds to one stone's disturbance of that water. There's waves that go to every part of the shore of that pond, no, even if you don't see it. So we're talking about an incredibly sensitive element here that fills our cells called cytoplasm. It fills the fluids around the cells called the extracellular fluid. And therefore, it's incredibly uh, important to understand the relevance that good quality water plays in our health, in our livestock health, and our irrigation systems in the aquifers, in the surface water, it plays such a profound role, and we just look at it as what? This very common, taken for granted HTO substance that is always going to be there, and it doesn't really matter that much just what kind of quality we have. The make water be alive 
it has to have an interplay of at least two forces to have rhythm. It's, and, and water is the bearer of rhythm to life. The rise and fall of sap and trees, the pulsation of blood. And rhythm is the life element. In fact, Rudolf Steiner said, contrary to what you think, it's not the heart that beats the blood. It's the blood that beats the heart. I know that sounds somewhat illogical because we know the blood is pushed around by the ventricles, mus- muscular ventricles of the heart. But what he's saying is that the nature of the blood, when you're in a living organism, has its own life force that actually invigorates and can stimulate other organs, whether it be the heart, the liver, the lungs, the kidneys. And it's always interesting how we take for granted that water is the universal solvent. You know, when, when you're grinding up salt in a salt mine and other minerals, you've got to use a lot of horsepower to grinding machinery, and yet... Water dissolves it, that which is dependent upon tremendous amounts of mechanical. And then, of course, when when water combines with what? Carbon dioxide, it makes even a stronger dissolver in the soil called what? Carbonic acid. Merely water and carbon dioxide. And this is the interesting thing about carbon dioxide. It's only 0.03% in the atmosphere. And yet coming out of the soil, it's 3 to 4%, which means it's 3,000 to 4,000 parts per million. And we're freaking out over 375 up there. But we make 3 to 4,000 parts per million coming out of the soil, except that it's captured right away by the stoma of the plant and made into these other compounds like carbon compounds for the root. And this very interesting carbonic acid, carbon dioxide and water, carbonic acid. Carbonic acid and hydrase enzyme is the material that makes hydrochloric acid in the body. It removes chlorine and hydrogen out of the blood, and it makes HCl, which is hydrochloric acid. That's carbonic carbonic anhydrase enzyme. And so silica is very attracted to water. So here's the elephant standing in the living room. Silica is the most common metal or metallic element found in the Earth's crust. Silica, aluminum, iron. And yet we think, well, silica is just sand. No, it's not. Silica is at the interface of the physical realms of gas and liquid especially. So it's a real magnet for water. And what do plants do? They take silica. When it's biologically changed or alchemically changed, what do they turn it into? They turn it into orthosilicic acid. Then it becomes water-soluble. Plants take up orthosilicic acid. And what do they do? They make cuticle out of it. So here's the Mississippi River Delta. Here's fractal geometry. That could look just like the alveoli blood vessels in the lung. You see how the patterns show up over and over again? It it wants to make it this way, whether you're a river, whether you're a blood vessel. Here's a watershed. That's not Afghanistan. (laughs) That's actually a watershed in, in, in Oregon. But just to show you how the blood vessels congeal and congregate, create the surface area. There's all this communication with the surface area. Here's an interesting way of looking at, you know, nature's knowing how to do things. The sun, California smelt, you know, it spawns at the highest tide on the third day after the full moon in May, and only then. It's carried to shore on the last highest wave where it's going to lay its eggs And then it's taken back out to sea. The adults are taken back out to sea on the next receding wave. And the eggs are safe now because all the other receding waves don't come in as far, right? It knows exactly when to drop those eggs. Fourteen days later, high moon shows up again. 
High tide appears, the eggs hatch minutes before that high wave hits the shore and being swept out to sea. So in other words, the quantum coherence of nature in this example shows you that there's only one minute of the year when the relative positions of the sun, moon, and earth are exact that that phenomena occurs. One minute in the entire year that those spelt know when to drop their eggs and they know when to leave. That's it. That's quantum coherence. Humans are a marriage of water and air. Here's something that's an interesting, not coincidence. We breathe 18 times a minute, which is about 25,920 times a day. And it takes the same number of years for the vernal equinox to circle the zodiac. We have 72 heartbeats and 18 breaths per minute, which is a 4 to 1 ratio of heartbeats to, to, to breathing. And sound travels four times faster in water than in air, especially salt water like our blood. So here's New Jersey zinc. I'm just going to go through this real quick. This is a destroyed area 100 years ago. And New Jersey zinc smelted zinc and cadmium, destroyed the whole mountainside. What happened? Uh, nothing grew there. For the last 40 years, they couldn't get anything to grow there with compost, with uh, all kinds of things. And eventually, they, this is what the Appalachian Trail looks like right there. That's the Appalachian Trail. Blue Ridge Mountains, dead, moon, nothing, nothing will grow there. You can see all the topsoil's gone, nothing but rubble left. They came along after they seeded it to warm season grasses and limestone, and two years later, that's what they got. The first time they could figure it out, nothing else would grow. This is a prairie on the mountain. This is September 2004. This is, this is 2006. You can see the dead zone. They came in here with an airplane to seed it and lime it, and this is what you have now. So the metavoles are coming back. Everything's coming back. This is, this is, there's 14 academic institutions studying this place because nobody can figure out what's going on there. You can see this is the national park. They refuse to cooperate. Here's the preserve, the dead zone in the national park, the private preserve reclaimed in two years. Now the national park said, I guess you were right. 14 species of plants, trees are coming back, raptors are coming back, songbirds are coming back. This is what they were trying to do with sewage sludge years ago to get it to grow things. Didn't work. That's what they were doing up there on the mountaintop. Super fun money. And so Curvon was the guy that, that, that explained to me maybe what's, what's going on. We're missing something here. And that all of these fellows, biological transmutation, a global historical perspective, wasn't just Curvon that said, Elements in biological systems are capable of transmuting from calcium to silica, silica to calcium, and so forth. It's hard to follow because we can't really understand it. We can only prove the results. And all of these individuals from Germany, from the uh, British Isles, France, USSR, all did separate experiments and said, it definitely is the case. Biology gets transmuted. We don't understand how, but we can prove that it does happen. And these are the uh, soil tests that we did on, on the mountain. And over here, what we see is, because the mountain says, okay, what are we going to do about this soil? It's contaminated. We don't want to lose it. We got the prairie back, but what do we do with it? Well, they're talking about burning it. But instead of burning it, we're saying maybe we ought to graze it. The problem with grazing it, we don't know what the levels of the zinc are in the forages. I did the soil, a soil test and the forage test, and what do we find out? The zinc levels are 700 parts per million, when ideal is like 35. So 
Here's what Curvon said. What they can concur is it only occurs mostly with the first 20 elements, the transmutation. This is alchemy. Lesser extent with the next elements, it always involves oxygen or hydrogen. Well, that's air and water. Always involves air or water. And it has one millionth the energy requirement of nuclear physics in vitro. That's why there's so much skepticism about biological transmutation of energy. It takes tremendous amounts of energy to do that in quantum physics or nuclear physics. Um, the microbial solidization of toxic metals, key biochemical process for the treatment of contamination. And this comes out of this research right here, which is a scientific paper. We find out that metal sulfides can be precipitated by bacteria. There's heterotrophic leaching by fungi. They're reduced and methylated uh, to, to transform the metals. The metals get changed. We can't get anything to grow in that mountain but warm season grasses right now. That's it. But guess what's happening? Now that the warm season grasses are there, the trees are showing up. Soil's not changed. The biology's changed. The trees are showing up, couldn't get the trees to grow there. The shrubs are growing up, couldn't get the shrubs to grow there. As soon as you got this biology of all these intermingled roots producing all these millions and millions of exudates, we don't know what's going on, except that there's biology there. Everybody's there with microscopes. Wow, look at the fungi. Wow, look at the actinomycetes and the protozoa and the bacteria. Where did they come from? Where did they come from? We couldn't get them to go there. We know that egg-laying hens have been proven to be very, very effective in transmuting elements. We know that the skeleton of the embryo or the hatched chick or the hatched fish, which doesn't have a shell in the egg, exceeds the amount of calcium that's in the egg, whether it's a fish egg or whether it's a chicken egg. Where did, the, where did those elements come from to, to make that, that skeleton in that fish, that hatched fish or that hatched chicken? It, it came from nowhere unless it was transmuted. On mice, these are five-day experiments on mice. We can see that you know the total weights were totally different in five days when they were deprived of a specific element like magnesium um, compared to the control mice. And you can see massive differences on a five-day experiment on animals. So what we're saying here, and to sum it up, quantum coherence, subatomic particles cooperate. They know each other. They communicate by link bands of electromagnetic fields. They're measured by photo, photomultipliers. And the light is what actually communicates. Uh, the more complex the organisms, the fewer the photons, interestingly enough. Cancer patients have lost coherence and rhythms. Multiple sclerosis patients, they have too much coherence, too much light. And perfect coherence is optimum state between chaos and order. It's called zero-point fluctuations. So this is where it begins. This is where it ends. This is better where it stays. You know, but... All we know is what we don't know is a lot much, much larger than what we know, and that's okay. But we better, we better start becoming the observers that, you know, we think we are. Because we're spending way too much time and way too much money. What we should have in the United States, in my opinion, is we should have a two-hour Sabbath like they have in Italy. And we wouldn't be so nuts. And we'd eat better food. And we would be a lot smarter and a lot wiser and a lot happier to slow it all down and observe these phenomena that have been going on since the beginning of time, the miracle of life that goes on around us every single day. I mean, it's fact, fact, much stranger, stranger than fiction, fiction. Okay, folks, I'm going to let you go. I thank you for your time and your appreciation.
Thank you again for listening to Tractor Time by Acres USA. This is Ryan Slaybaugh. Uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, you can find all of our podcasts at ecofarmingdaily.com. You can purchase audio files that you're listening to here and more at acresusa.com. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Everybody have a good week ahead.